first time with us, thank you so much for joining us. I know as the semester goes on, it can become a little bit more difficult to try something new. So thank you for going out of your comfort zone to be here. My name is Derek, and I'm the pastor here of Chi Alpha. I would love to meet you after service. Last week, I got to meet a lot of new faces, so thank you for that. Also, before we go on, we do need to celebrate something. Two of our fearless small group leaders just got engaged yesterday, Carly Clifton and Luke Doss. Let's give them a round of applause. Amen, amen. Luke's been telling me for a year he's the Rizzler or the Rizzinator, and he's like, I can, anyways, he proved it. He's the Rizzler, I guess. When Luke and Carly, this has nothing to do with what I'm preaching about, but when Luke and Carly, they started like dating, kind of. We were on a mission trip to Turkey, which side note, we're on mission trips, we're going to announce in November, so you better be ready because you thought last year was cool. Hall, you just wait till this year. Anyways, hey, back to my story. We were on an airplane, and Taylor and I were a row in front of Luke and Carly, and they got randomly placed together, and I just hear one of them, I think it was Luke, say, Sal, do you have any siblings? I'm like, they're in love. It's done. <laughs> and slowly over that very long plane ride, they fell in love. And I was like, I want to go to sleep, but it's impossible because this is just so much fun to listen to. Him just pull his moves. And Carly's like, hee, 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 it's great. And so it was awesome. It works. Great job, you too. Other fun announcement is my second son, Judah Paul, is at his first Chi Alpha service tonight. So that's exciting. He was in the NICU, which is the hospital for babies, until last week. And he got to come home. And so our lives got even crazier. We doubled it real quick, but it's good. All right, we're going to jump into tonight. So we're spending this first month of our school year in this sermon series entitled Journey of a Lifetime. We're going back to the time of Jesus and trying to walk with God and learn how we can today start a journey of a lifetime with Jesus. And tonight we're going to go back to the very beginning of Jesus' time in ministry. So Jesus spent the first 30 years of his life not doing anything too crazy. He was just a normal person who had a job. He was like a carpenter, a craftsman, and he just lived as a normal human being. And then around the time he turned 30, something started to shift with him. Jesus started to wander around teaching people things about God. And as he did this, he started to attract a following. These were the disciples. Disciple actually means apprentice. So the people who were apprenticing under Jesus. So a few of these men became his disciples and they left everything to follow him as their religious guide. And the reason they did this is because they saw Jesus do things that they'd never seen before. For example, Peter and Andrew, they were fishermen, and one time they're fishing and they couldn't catch anything, so Jesus came out and he's like, hey, let's try again, throw it out one more time, and then boom, it's like hundreds and hundreds of fish were caught by them, it's like, okay, that's nutty, I'm going to follow you now. So in the beginning, Jesus would do these private little miracles, but nothing big in public. He didn't show himself, no, he'd do little miracles to attract his small group, he, Jesus had a small group just like we do. Amen and amen. So he did these little miracles to start a small group. And so tonight what I want you to do is I want you to imagine that you are in Jesus' small group. You are one of these early disciples. So you're walking around with Jesus and you've seen him do some really cool things, but not in front of a lot of people. And so, but you're expecting Jesus to start upping the ante a little bit. And Jesus gathers you all together and he says, all right, guys, it is time. We're going to go to a wedding. And you're like, what? That doesn't seem to line up. You're like, Jesus, I've seen you do some cool things. We got things to do. You're supposed to be like God. We got a timeline to get going. We don't have time for a wedding. But Jesus is like, oh, hear me, hear me. I promise you, when you watch me do like the cha-cha slide, it's going to change the world. Jesus wanted to dance. Maybe I made that up. But anyways, so you're like, the world needs to know who you are, Jesus. And you're as his disciple. And he just hushes you. He's like, shh, never mind that. We got to go to a wedding. It's time to dance. So like, all right, whatever you say, Jesus. 
So you get to this wedding with Jesus, and keep in mind, in this time period, weddings were a huge deal. You think they're a big deal now, they were way bigger back then. Families would spend a ton of time and money to throw a huge party that would last multiple days. The reason they would do this is because their wedding, really, when they're throwing one, their reputation was on the line. A good wedding showed that your family had wealth, showed that your family was somebody, and you had prestige. To throw a bad wedding party would actually bring shame upon your family. It'd be embarrassing. So you're at this part or this wedding party, knowing it's a big deal, dancing the night away with Jesus, and Jesus' mom comes up to him, and she's like, hey, Jesus, get over here. You're like, Jesus gets yelled at by his mom? This is awesome. And then we pick up our story tonight. It says in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. That's all of us. That's where we come in tonight. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus says to him, they have no wine. Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, just do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Remember that. Each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus says to his servants, fill those jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some water out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, which is just the groom, and says to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. They all laugh. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glories, and his disciples believed in him. Our sermon title tonight is A New Journey. Let me pray for us, God. We pray that you're going to speak to us something new and fresh tonight, Jesus, and that we can just meet with you. We love you so much. Amen and amen. Do you guys remember running the mile in like middle school and high school for fitness testing? Do you guys have to do that too? Cool, cool. I want to know if I got like was too old and that wasn't allowed anymore, but it seems like no. To most people, running the mile is just a normal day, right? Just a little annoying, but it's just a mile. No big deal. Not for me. Running the mile was the most dreaded day of my entire year. I hated running the mile. I was... um. A little bit husky, to say the least, as a child. I really enjoyed this place. It was called Pizza Ranch. I don't know if you've heard of it before, but I really enjoyed Pizza, Pizza Ranch. I had a frequent flyer card. I'd come in, they're like, Derek, your third time this week. Is that okay for you? And I'm like, yeah, it's fine. It was bad, okay? I had a problem. Please pray for a little old Derek. But anyways, I was a bigger kid, so I was horrible at running the mile. And I remember in sixth grade, I ran the mile for the first semester, and my time was horrible. So second semester rolls around, and it's mile day again. And they start calling out names, blank, blank, and eventually, Derek Quimby. So they gather this group together. And as they gather this nice small group of people, I start looking around. And I realize that this group, we all shared a commonality. I start thinking, hmm, you guys look like you like Pizza Ranch a lot, too. <laughs> this isn't going to be good. We were not a big group in numbers, but in other ways. We were fierce, though. I someone just snorted. This is all right. So then they proceeded to tell this nice, beautiful-looking group that we did not run the mile fast enough the first time, so we have to run again. And looking back, that was horrible. Like, that kind of traumatized me. They gather us, and like, hey, you guys have gotten too many seconds at lunch, all right? We looked at, look at you. Chubby group, we're running it back. It wasn't good enough the first time. You got to do it again. And then everyone, like, watches and laughs at you. Like, why would you do that to children? But it's fine. So we head out to the track, and I had two other bigger friends, and we start running together, and I'm, this is not me exaggerating, this is not hyperbole, 
This is a story, which was true. We're running that last lap, and there's three of us, right? And one of the guys, he starts to trip, and he like runs, or like as he's tripping, he yells, go on without me, straight out of the movie, (laughs) all right? And I'm like, okay, I don't want to run again a third time. So I kept going on without him. I feel bad for that guy. I haven't really talked to him a whole lot since, so let's pray for him. His name was Matt. Maybe, maybe he loves Jesus now. That could be cool. Anyways, all this to say that running the mile was an embarrassing experience for me. So next year run, comes around, and lo and behold, ha I didn't run the mile fast enough first semester again. Thank you. Second semester comes, they tell us, all right, next week, you're going to run the mile, and those of us who weren't fast enough, you have to run it again. And I'm just so sad. I don't want to go through that experience, right? Like, obviously, running stinks, but worse than that, I'm just sick of being humiliated. It's horrifying to be in the slow, chubby group in front of all your classmates. So as I'm staring into the face of embarrassment, I start talking to my mom about this, and I had this idea. I'm like, wait, Mom, what if you called me out of school that day right before gym class, and we could come and do whatever you want? Then I don't have to be embarrassed. Keep in mind, my mom probably had plans for the day, things she had to get done, It was going to be inconvenient for her to throw her whole day away just to save me a few minutes of embarrassment. But I'm kind of a mama's boy, and my mama loves me. So she says, she gives me whatever I want, which is why I was in the slow chubby group. She took me to pizza ranch too much. (laughs) But anyways, so there's good and bad a part of that, but she says, okay. And she proceeds to call me out. She changes her whole day around, so she picked me up from school early so I can skip gym class and save just a few minutes of embarrassment. This is what Jesus was faced with at this wedding. Mary comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, you need to do something. This couple, these families are going to be embarrassed. It will bring shame upon them if they run out of wine. Do something about it. We need to keep in mind that the author of this book of the Bible we're reading, his name is John. John tells us this was Jesus' first sign. So I want you to think about a politician who's running for office. Can't wait till next year when we get to go through the election of 2024. God help us all. Anyways, and politician running for office Their first speech where they announce that they're running is really important, right? They're going to spend weeks preparing for that speech because they don't want to screw it up. They're going to pick the perfect words to say, get the perfect venue, so they can start off on the right foot. And for Jesus, this sign, being his first sign, was his coming out party. It was him saying, this is who I am. His first big sign, his big public event, showing that he was the Messiah. And John uses this word sign instead of miracle to show that it's a little bit bigger. Because sign kind of is like the word symbol is another way to say it. So it's symbolizing something so much bigger, not just a little miracle, but no, it's symbolizing that Jesus is getting started on the trajectory of his life. All that to say, this is a big deal. And Jesus was a little bit reluctant. So he's like, mom, I'm not so sure about this. But eventually gives in and makes his coming out party as the Messiah, saving a couple from some embarrassment. He makes it, making a party last a little bit longer. Jesus' coming out party was saving a party. I don't know about you, but if I was the Messiah about to show the world that I was God, I'm going to make my first sign kind of baller, right? Like I'm going to raise someone from the dead and make a blind person see. I'm going to like levitate or something, something that's a little bit cooler. I'm going big. I got to show the world what I got. But Jesus does something that seems so trivial. He saves a few people from being embarrassed. The question we need to answer is, why does Jesus choose this as his first sign? And the end of our story in verse 11 answers this question for us. It says in John 2, 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So Jesus did this to manifest his glory. 
That just means to show people who he was. His glory was like his essence. So Jesus is showing us who he is. And there's a few things about the character of Jesus that this story shows us. First, it is clear that Jesus cares about the little things in life. Saving someone from embarrassment doesn't seem like a big deal, right? But to Jesus, it was worth using up his first sign. He can't do it again. He can't have two first signs. You only get one. So Jesus uses this big calling card that starts his life trajectory that ends with the cross just for a little thing. This shows us that little things matter to Jesus. Jesus cares about what you care about. No matter how big or small the struggles are in your life, they matter to God. My wife Taylor and I have this crazy journey of having our twin boys. Long story short, it took us a long time to get pregnant, and then in the middle of the pregnancy, the boys had to have surgery while they're in the womb because one was stealing too much from the other one. So that was crazy. Then Taylor's water breaks a month before it's supposed to. So we go to the hospital. Fun fact, you can be pregnant with your water broken for a month. Who knew that? I certainly didn't. But we had to go move and live in a hospital. They transfer us down to Cedar Rapids after her water breaks. So many big things to worry about, right? And so that morning, her water breaks. We go to the hospital in Waterloo. They transfer us to Cedar Rapids. She has to go in an ambulance. And I follow behind in our car. And on the way, I call my mom to kind of talk about it in process, and she wants to see what I'm worried about. But for some reason, my biggest worry was not to like, hey, your kids could come a month early, which might mean they're in the hospital forever. It could mean like losing them. Taylor could be in trouble. Huge medical bills. You have to live in a hospital for a month. For some reason, that morning, the biggest thing on my mind was that we weren't going to have a onesie for our babies to wear in their first picture. Seems small, right? But to me, it was a big deal because I wanted to show our parents or show our babies that we thought about them and we cared about them. I knew that the hospital would have clothes for them to wear, but to me, it mattered a lot. So in the middle of all these big things, I was worried about something very small. And my mom loves me, so she said, I'll take care of it. And she went out and bought way too many clothing items. We didn't know the gender, so she bought like 100 guys and 100 girls' outfits. Way too, so if you guys are looking for little girl onesies, we've got plenty for sale. They'll be in the, in the merch booth. Perfect. <laughs> so even though this thing was small in comparison to the big things that we should be worrying about, it mattered to me, so it mattered to my mom. So even if what you're going through seems small, it matters to Jesus because it matters to you. Jesus loves you that much, which that means that we can tell Jesus what we're worrying about. I think sometimes we think, oh, that's too small of a thing for me to pray about, right? It's not that big of a deal. Jesus has got a lot of things to worry about. Jesus is saying, let me worry about what I can worry about. You just tell me what's going on in your mind. We often psych ourselves out of connecting with God because we think it's not that big of a deal, but Jesus loves you and cares about you, and if it matters to you, it matters to him. Another thing this story teaches us about who Jesus is is that Jesus came to bring joy. Wine is often seen as a symbol of joy, celebration, life, all that stuff. Side note, there's a lot of debate on whether or not the wine in this story is actually alcoholic or not, and I'm not going to dive into that, because if I'm honest with you, I think it's really hard to know for sure what it was. But if you want to dive into it, hey, Pastor Victor, will you stand up? Everyone turn around and look at him. If you want to argue about whether or not it's wine, ask him. He's our training director. He leads our internship. His whole life is debating random stuff. So if you have questions, don't bring them to me. Bring them to Victor. Bombard him afterwards. He would love to do it. Uh, I will say that I personally, nor anyone on our Chi Alpha team, none of us drink alcohol. 
So I'm not advocating for you to go to Sharky's and celebrate the goodness of God and say, I'm hammered, white claws for Jesus. No, that's not what I'm telling you to do, all right? That's not what I'm advocating tonight. But if you want to do that, again, Victor would love to talk you through it. He'll drive you home. It'll be fine. We're using this as symbolism, people. All right. So Jesus is showing that he's here to bring joy. But I think even deeper than that, Jesus is here to show us who's in charge. See, these weddings, they had a master of feasts, which would be like the wedding planner, the scariest people at a wedding, God help us all, or like a master of ceremonies, we might think of it. They're in charge. Their job was to keep the party going. And when Jesus turned the water into wine, he basically took the role because now he was the one keeping the party going. What Jesus is telling us through this story is that he is now the Lord of the feast. He is now the master of ceremonies. He's in charge now. And when Jesus takes over, things are about to change. Because, see, Jesus doesn't just turn this water into average wine. Jesus doesn't do things half but. He goes bigger, goes home, baby. So Jesus turns this water into the best-tasting wine you could ever imagine. And this wedding planner is kind of freaked out. He's like, usually everyone, when they've had a good fill of wine, they're not really worried about what it tastes like. Everyone brings out the cheap stuff, but you got the best stuff right now. See, Jesus brings the best wine when he's in charge. Life with God should be a life of joy, a life of the good stuff. Life with God is not just about ceremony, it's about celebration. Our life with God should be filled with joy. His first miracle, his big moment, is helping everyone have a good time. And somehow we've turned this Jesus into a God who's mad at us, we have to perform for. Some like God with a little magnifying glass trying to burn ants. That's not God. Clearly, Jesus is showing us that he is the God of celebration, a God of joy, not the God of drunkenness. Again, I want to reiterate that. Don't go to Sharky's and say, my pastor told me to. (laughs) So if your life with God is not joyful, I think you're doing it wrong. As we talked about last week when we said we need to drink the living water, in order to understand the goodness of God, we need to taste the choice wine. We need to have a feast with God. And the way we taste the goodness of God is through worship through spending time with Jesus. That's why we do all this at the beginning of our service, because it's a time to sit in the presence of God and to taste the good feast that he's given us. That's how we turn ceremony into our celebration. So Jesus is telling us who he is. He says, I'm the new master of ceremonies, and I come to bring the good stuff. And now that we know why Jesus chose this as his first sign, we need to ask, well, in doing this, what was Jesus actually doing? Because it's got to be deeper than just keeping the party going, right? See, most of us would not expect the Messiah, the God of the universe, to make this his first sign, as we've said. What Jesus is doing is Jesus is turning our expectations of him upside down. We must remember that Jesus was Jewish. The Jewish people or the people of God, they had certain expectations for what life looked like with God and how they could relate to him. They viewed God as the creator of the universe that we're supposed to reverently follow but we have to obey him in order to be loved. We have to do these certain rituals and then we'll be good enough to be connected to God. They had to follow rules. Jesus is that same God coming to earth, but he's saying, I'm coming to make a new way. Jesus' main mission in coming to the world was to give us a new way to relate to God. This is often called the new covenant. The word covenant is like agreement or like a contract, but it's more than that where it's an agreement under the covering of God. 
Marriage is our best example of this. Marriage is called a covenant because it is a legal contract, right? There's legal ramifications, but we believe that when people get married, they're also blessed by God and covered under the goodness of God. So it's a legal contract, but with the blessing of God. That's what the word covenant means. So Jesus comes to say, I'm bringing a new covenant. The old covenant between God and his people was that they had to do sacrifices, follow these rules, and then they could be with God. But Jesus is coming to say there's a new way to relate to God. Jesus brings a new way to relate to God. Let's jump back into our story. In our story, Mary convinces Jesus to do this sign, and Jesus tells the servants, all right, go get the stone water jars that were for the Jewish rites of purification. What that means is those jars they used would be filled with water and placed at the entrance of the wedding. So before the people could go into the wedding and start celebrating, they have to do a ritual where they cleanse their hands and cleanse themselves in these jars of water so that they could become clean from their sins and clean so they could be with God. It was all about ceremony, all about doing the right things. And they would have to do this over and over and over again because they continued to sin, so they continued to get dirty, so they continued to need to clean so that they'd be pure enough to be with God. These jars are the epitome of ritual, a ritualistic cleaning so that you can become clean before God. And Jesus chooses these vessels as the container for his new wine to show us that there's a new way to be clean before God. He turns this water that represents ritual into wine. Wine represents fellowship, community, party, celebration. Water represents ritual, while wine represents relationship. Jesus turns ritual into relationship. In the new way of Jesus, we no longer just need to check off the right boxes to relate to God. He wants something so much greater for us. God wants a personal relationship with you. If you've grown up in the church, you've heard that a lot, right? Like, I need a personal relationship with God. Do we know what that actually means? The creator of the universe, the person who's bigger than all the stars in the galaxy, wants to intimately know you. That should mess with us. The God of the universe wants a relationship with you. And in order for us to turn our life with God from ritual into relationship, we have to spend time with God. That's the only way you grow in relationship, right? We need to do things like praying, Talk to God about what's on your heart. There's no right way to pray. You don't get good at praying. There's nothing you need to recite. Just talk to God. He's ready and willing to speak with you. Remember, Jesus cares about the little things, so he cares about the little things in your heart. He just wants a relationship. We also develop a relationship with God through reading the Bible. The Bible is God speaking to you. All right, I think we can often say, like, I never hear the voice of God or I don't feel God. There is a book actually a collection of books, that is God speaking to you. Until you've read all that a lot of times, then you can complain. But read that first, all right? God has given you a way to connect with him. That's how we develop relationship with God. We don't read the Bible out of duty or to earn something. We do it to develop our personal connection to God. That's how we turn from ceremony to celebration. Spend time with Jesus on your own. If you learn one thing in your time in Chi Alpha, it'll be that we want you to spend time with Jesus on your own. As much as we love these things, we love services and small groups, none of them will help you develop personal relationship like having a time with God every day where you connect with him. Because that's the fun part, right? That's where we get to know God. That's where he speaks to us. In a couple of weeks, as we showed you in that video, we're going to be launching our discipleship training class. At the same time, we're launching our new sermon series that is all about the things we're covering in the discipleship training class because we really want to help you guys get connected to knowing God. It is going to be awesome 
This class is designed to help you as a Jesus follower, to help you connect to God personally. If you want to know how you can become closer to God, I highly encourage you to sign up for that class because I think it could change your life. Life with Jesus can become the journey of a lifetime when it goes from ritual to relationship. So the new way is relationship, not ritual. He doesn't stop there, though. Jesus using these vessels to turn water into wine also shows us that it's about the inside, not the outside. Jesus changes what is inside of these ceremonial vessels, but he doesn't touch the outside of them. He doesn't worry about it. Throughout Jesus' time in ministry and time in life, he's constantly telling people, focus on what's going on inside of you. Near the end of Jesus' time on earth, he gathers all these religious people together, and he pronounces woes to them, basically saying, this is how you've missed the mark. That sounds terrifying. But he's telling them that you keep practicing things the old way, but there is a new way. In Matthew 23, he says this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, the religious people, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, Ouch. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Clean the inside of the cup. That means Jesus cares more about what's inside of your heart, what you're thinking about, than how you appear to people. On the outside, those ceremonial vessels probably looked kind of cool. They appeared to be great, but they are filled with dirty water. But then Jesus changes it, fills them with beautiful wine. It's about the inside. If you want to be made pure with God, Yes, we want to avoid sin. We talked about that last week, right? We want to run from sin. We want to be holy. But that must flow from a pure heart. Our outside actions flow from what's going on inside of us. Murder flows from hatred. Adultery flows from lust inside the heart. So if you want to be made right with God, you must focus on the inside of our lives. So my question to you is, what is your thought life like? Do you appear holy on the outside but struggle with some things like pride, anger, lust, bitterness on the inside? Maybe it's just me. Maybe you guys are all like holy on the inside, but I've got some bad thoughts sometimes, especially when people don't know how to use roundabouts. That's when I get most angry. Oh, today, preach, amen, amen, sorry. I'm, just, I'm confessing my sin, people. It's a good thing to do. Go to small group. For me growing up, I'll be honest with you guys, my outside looked pretty good. If you were like judging church kids, like how good are they, I'm like a five-star church kid, right? I played on the worship team every week. Eventually, they started turning on the amp I was using. My first couple of years was turned off because I was so bad. But anyways, I didn't swear. I didn't drink. Nothing appeared sinful. But on the inside, I was full of pride. I thought I'd earn my way to God because I wasn't doing the stupid things people around me. I thought I was better than other people. I was judgmental. Instead of worrying about the outside of the people around me, I probably should have been focusing on the inside junk inside of my heart, right? That's the beauty of Jesus, is Jesus is worried about our insides. But the thing that's so beautiful about God is maybe you're like me, and your insides got some things that aren't so clean. Jesus can transform that too. Jesus can take the filth inside of us and turn it into beautiful wine. But we must be humble enough to recognize that, hey, I've got some sin in my heart. Jesus, I need you to do a cleansing work in me. Not only do we just want right actions, we want pure motives. We want to be humble, loving, joyful, patient, kind, patient, all the roundabout people who amen me. Be patient. You're like, no, I don't want to. I'm ticked. Anyways, be kind. I get, this list just keeps going. Be good. We need good things deep inside of our souls. 
And no matter how far you may feel your thought life is, Jesus can transform that into beautiful wine too. The new way is inside, not outside focused. It's not about the actions as much as it's about the heart. But a good heart will lead to good and pure actions. That's the beauty of it, right? So again, I'm not saying go out and do whatever the heck you want, but just be happy about it on the inside. All right, the final way that Jesus shows us he's making a new way is he shows us there's a new way to become exalted, to be lifted up, to be thought well of. In Jesus, and if we're honest, our own day, life can kind of be about prestige. We want to make it to the top, right? You want to get to the top of career ladder, be the best student. We want to be exalted. Usually this looks like acquiring money, fame, power, followers. And when Jesus does this big first sign, you would expect him, if he's going to come out and show he's God, to do it to the higher ups, right? He's going to go gather royalty. He's going to gather the important people. And so he's going to show who he is so he can advance quickly in life. But Jesus turns our expectations upside down. Verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, that's the big guy, now become wine, he didn't know where it came from. But the servants did. The servants are the ones who knew where the water was drawn. The master, the king, the leader of the feast had no idea. Jesus doesn't reveal himself to this powerful man who can advance himself. No, he goes after the servants. Jesus chooses the servants to be the first one outside of his disciples to reveal himself to. Jesus exalts the lowly. Another clue into Jesus' affinity for the lowly is this family that was throwing this wedding probably didn't come from a lot of money. We don't know that, but the region they're from was a poor region, and they like ran out of wine, right? Which probably means they didn't buy enough, which probably means they didn't have enough money. Jesus cares about the poor and the lowly. Jesus wants to serve people who are low and help them from even being embarrassed. He is showing us right here what the key is to audience with God. The way to get in God's sight is not to become the master of ceremonies, not to become the highest of your company, not to become the best student you can be, which that's all good things and okay things, but rather it's about being a servant. In the same section where Jesus was giving woes to those religious people we just talked about, who said, and they didn't understand this new way, he says this as well. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the new way. The new way is humility. We don't look to promote ourselves. We don't look to be seen by everyone else, to become somebody, but rather we live to serve, to exalt other people. The new way is humility, not pride. So I want you to ask yourself, when you're doing your day-to-day life, who are you most often thinking about? When you live, are you thinking, how can I love the people around me? How can I serve the people around me? Or are you thinking about how can you do what's best for you? For me, a lot of times I'm thinking about how can I do what's best for me? I'm just being honest. But Jesus is saying, that's not the key to joy in this life. If you want to taste the best wine, you've got to be a servant. So this is Jesus showing us there is a new way for us to relate to God. In his first sign, his coming out party, Jesus is showing us he came to make all things new. But we must go back to our story just one more time to answer the most important question of all. How did Jesus make all things new? So Jesus is at this wedding as a single man. What do single people usually think about while they're at weddings? Why, when you look at single people at weddings, are they usually gazing off in the distance, deep in thought, thinking about something? Usually, not always, usually they're thinking about their own potential future wedding day. So as Jesus is at this wedding, probably lost in thought, 
his mom comes up and says, Jesus, they ran out of wine. You need to do something about it. And Jesus kind of responds sternly. We don't really see Jesus act like this a whole lot, but he says, woman, don't call your mom woman. That's a one-way path to the danger zone. He's like, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come yet. He's a little angsty, right? As Jesus asked to fix this wine issue, I want you to picture it like a movie scene. So we see Jesus do that, and we zoom in to him, into his thought life, just like you do in movies a lot. So we can see what he's thinking about. In Jesus' brain, he immediately flashes forward to thinking about his own wedding day. That's what he was thinking about. And as he's thinking about his own wedding day, he is filled with both joy, but also filled with horror at the prospect. Because see, Jesus' wedding day, it's described in the Bible. But instead of Jesus marrying a beautiful woman, the bride of Jesus is all of us, the people of God, the church. Jesus' followers are referred to as the bride, while Jesus himself is our groom. See, there will come a day when all the people of God are united with Jesus, and all things will be made right, evil will be conquered, and we will get to celebrate at the wedding feast of King Jesus. We'll have so much joy as all of the sorrow of this life is made new. All the things that bring you sadness, all the things that have seemed to go wrong in your life, if you are a follower of Jesus, you will eventually be wiped away as you get to celebrate with your group, King Jesus. All things will be made right. But see, when Mary asks Jesus to turn the water into wine, Jesus thinks, I know I can do that. Jesus knows he can do it. Jesus knows he can bring us that festival joy. Jesus knows he can make all things right. Jesus knows he can clean us of dirt and filth. Jesus knows that he can make a new way back to God, which leads to this beautiful wedding day. But as Jesus is asked this question, he is also faced with the reality of what this wedding day is going to cost him. See, when Jesus does this first sign, this simple gesture of saving a couple from embarrassment, he knows he's going public. He knows he's starting himself down a trajectory that will lead him to the cross, to the most brutal death in all of history. That's why he's a little reluctant. He's like, Mom, I'm not so sure about this. So when Jesus ultimately decides to turn the water into wine, it's Jesus going all in. He's putting all these chips into the basket of humanity. Jesus is giving everything for us. Because Jesus knows that in order for all of us to have that joy, he's going to have to lose his. Because, see, we've constantly gotten ourselves dirty with sin. Remember the wedding feast, how they had to purify themselves beforehand? The reason they had to go to those jars and clean their hands is because they kept getting filthy with sin, just like we do every day. We should have to go and purify ourselves every day because we screw up every single day. But see, Jesus looked inside of that purification jar and said, that water doesn't seem strong enough. That cleansing water is not strong enough to conquer sin once and for all. I'm sick of my people having to go back to this jar. He says, sin needs something a little bit more potent. Sin needs a different red liquid, not wine, but sin needed the blood of King Jesus. See, our sin... The punishment for our sin is death. When you and I disobey God, we deserve to die. Because Jesus is perfect, 
And so anything outside of perfection shouldn't be able to be with him. And the only other reality outside of Jesus is death. So someone needed to pay that death penalty. Someone had to pay to turn the water into wine. And that someone was Jesus. Because see, Jesus had to suffer so we could have wedding day celebration. The only way that we can become pure enough to be the bride of Jesus was for Jesus to die on a cross, to defeat our sins, to cover our shame. See, we should be red, red all over with sin and shame and guilt. But Jesus died to give us the most purely white wedding dress in all history. The fact that Jesus did all this for us not only does it give us hope that there's more than this world, right? But it also shows us just what Jesus thinks about you. Here's what I mean. I remember so vividly my wedding day. I remember standing at the altar and the doors open and Taylor starts walking down the aisle. I was so full of love. I was delighting in her. I'm like, come on, Jesus, thank you for my bride. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Jesus doesn't use this imagery of a wedding day on accident. Jesus feels towards you the way that a groom feels towards his bride. Jesus delights in you. Jesus loves you and he gave everything for you. I think often we struggle with this idea. We think Jesus could never delight in me. I've screwed up too bad. I've made too many mistakes. I'm too sinful to be the bride of Jesus. But this thought actually minimizes the cross. Tim Keller says in his book, Encounters with Jesus, hell came down on Jesus and he would not let go of us. His love for us has already taken everything that the universe could throw at it and it held fast. Listen to this. And you think somehow you're going to upset him? Is Jesus gonna look at you and say, well, that does it. Infinite existential torment was one thing, but I can only take so much. Jesus took the weight of humanity's sin on the cross. I promise nothing you're going to do is quite that bad. When Jesus turned that water into wine, he knew what he was doing because he was looking towards his wedding day. He knew the journey he was embarking upon. And he decided that we were worth it. Jesus, to him, making all things new for us was worth everything to him. Our main idea tonight is Jesus died for you to make all things new. Jesus died for you, but he wants to make all things new. So if you're here tonight and you understand this reality that Jesus died for you, maybe we need to go to the next part where Jesus says, I didn't just die for you, I want to make all things new. It says this in Matthew 9, verse 17. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. Jesus is telling us right here that he is doing a new thing. But we have to let him. We can't force this new thing Jesus is trying to do into our old way of life. The wineskin is what held the wine. New wine needs a new wineskin because if new wine is put into old wineskins, it won't be strong enough to hold the new wine. It'll burst. The new way of Jesus needs a new container. 
And that new container is the way we live our life. So if you want to be a follower of Jesus and want him to do something new inside of you, if you don't want to live a life of shame and guilt and pain anymore, but you want to find joy, if you want to go from drinking the cheap, dirty wine to the choice, best wine, you need to let Jesus make your life a new wineskin. You need to let Jesus actually change the things you're doing. We must go from living a life of fear and obligations and rituals. We must turn to relationship, to joyfully being fully devoted to God, simply because we love him. So maybe Jesus wants to do something new inside of you. Maybe you came to college with certain expectations of what these years are going to look like. Maybe you had a plan. You're like, this is what I'm going to be involved in. I'm going to join this group. I'm going to do this club. These are my friends. I'm going to spend my time doing this. My priorities will be this. I'll get my degree and get out of here in two and a half years, which is good to save money, but to get out of here as quick as possible. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus wants to turn those expectations upside down. Maybe God wants to do something new through your time in college. Jesus might be saying to you, I know you came to college expecting your life to look one way, to be all about your degree, about becoming somebody, but actually I want to use your time in college to expand my kingdom at you and I. Maybe you expected to do whatever you wanted in college, but Jesus is meeting you and saying, no, I want to be the Lord of your life while you're in college. These four years are not just about you doing what's best for you. No, these four years are about 10,000 students who need to bow the knee to their king and you're going to help me do it. Maybe Jesus wants to change your reality a little bit. Or maybe Jesus is saying, you came to college not in relationship with him, living life just for what you want. And he's saying, I want to change that. And what Jesus promises us, if we give our life to him, he's going to make new wine out of our life and fill it with joy. Or maybe you come here tonight as someone who's been following Jesus a long time. You grew up in the church, and you have certain expectations for what life with God looks like. You go to church on Sunday, you do the rituals, do the right things, and you and God are good. Maybe... God wants to do something new. Maybe he wants to take you from moral drudgery to fullness of life in him. Maybe he wants to go from ritual to relationship. Maybe there's some area of your life that you've been holding back from God and he says, I want that, please. Maybe Jesus just wants to start having a more personal relationship with you where you spend time with him, praying, reading the Bible. Maybe he needs to clean up the inside. The outside looks good, but he wants to clean up a little bit on the inside. Maybe the new thing he wants to do in your life with him is he wants you to quit trying to do life with him alone. I think we often think that we got this, that we don't need help. But maybe Jesus is saying, actually, I want you to do life in community because no one parties by themselves. If you do, that's embarrassing. Don't do that. Don't drink wine by yourself in your dorm room. That sounds sad. No, Jesus wants to bring you to festival joy, which means you need to do life in community with other people. And maybe this is the first time you've ever done that. Maybe the idea of going to a small group really challenges you a little bit, like, oh, I don't know about that. And Jesus is saying, will you let me do something new in you? Because life with others is better than life by yourself, I promise. Community might be this new thing God wants to do. So there's a lot of things that God might be speaking to. But the beauty is, is if we do this, we will find this new life to be full of joy. Jesus will turn the water in us to wine. Not just any wine, but the best wine. If we will follow Jesus with this new way of life, it'll be the journey of a lifetime. Will you all stand with me? If you're new here tonight, or maybe you're just new to following Jesus, or maybe you don't follow Jesus at all, we like to give a couple ways to respond. 
So if you're here tonight and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, or maybe you once did and you've walked away, we like to give an opportunity to physically respond to that and to put your life into Jesus, to say, Jesus, I want you to be my king now. And so what I'm, the way we do this is I'm gonna count to three and no one's gonna look around, right? Everyone looks at themselves. And if that's you and you say, no, Jesus needs to be the Lord of my life. I've been trying to do this thing on my own, but I gotta change that. I gotta maybe go back to God or I need to go to Jesus the first time. What I'm actually doing the count of three is just to slip your hand up. Two reasons why. One is sometimes then we need to do something physical to show what's going on inside. But also, I just want to know who I'm praying with. So if that's you and you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life and you want to give your life to Jesus and let him cover you with so much forgiveness, on the count of three, raise your hand. One, two, three. Is there anyone here? Thank you. I see those hands. Thank you. Anyone else? Amen. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you, God. Thank you for our new members of your kingdom. I pray that we can be a people fully devoted to you, Jesus. Thank you for grace. Amen. Amen. Second way we want us to respond is a little bit maybe out of your comfort zone. If you're here and you've been following Jesus, but you realize that Jesus needs to do something new in your life, and you want to go all in with him, or there's something you're holding back, what I want you to do is this space up here is open and we're going to sing another song. And so as a way to get yourself in a position to hear from God, if you want to say, Jesus, I need you to do something new, I want you to slip up front. Maybe get on your knees, maybe sit down. You can go to the sides if you want. You can go to the back. But I want you to move to kind of silence yourself a little bit to get along with Jesus. We're going to sing this song. And so if you are here and thinking, Jesus needs to do something new in my heart, I challenge you, come up to the front after I'm done praying. Go to the sides. Maybe go to the back. We've got a prayer team in the back that'd love to pray with you. And get alone with God and let him speak new life into you. Sound good? Let me pray. Jesus, we love you so much, God. Thank you that we don't have to keep doing things the old way, God. But you give us a new way of doing life. Jesus, thank you for paying the price that we could come to the wedding feast of you. We love you so much, Jesus. Amen and amen. All right. The front is open. The sides are open. I highly challenge you. Get along with God. Spread out. And let's just listen to Jesus for a few minutes.